section of the book of Romans where we're asking ourselves a question. Has God failed to keep his promises to Israel? Has the word of God failed? And that's how the Apostle Paul opens up the book of Romans. And he concludes, no, it's not as if the word of God has failed. In Romans 9, 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. What's the secret to this? God's promises to Israel have not failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there is a difference between a biological Israel and a spiritual Israel. And Paul's making that distinction for us. And God's people are not those who are ethnically Jewish necessarily. Nor are they the ones who strenuously keep the law of God. They're the ones who receive the mercy of God. Verse 16 of chapter 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So it's not the ethnicity nor the self-righteousness of the person, but it, is a, it depends on God's mercy entirely to be part of God's people. Now, we go on. Now, in Romans chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 24, which is in the middle of a sentence. And Paul is answering, so then who are God's people? Who then are God's people? We know who God's people are not, but who exactly are God's people? And Paul is going to unpack this question in a few movements today. So I'm going to start in verse um, 22 just for context, but what we'll be focusing on is verse 24 through 33 today. So read with me those verses. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And here's where Paul gives the answer. Who are the people of God? Even us, whom he has called, not just from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and that, a, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it, if were, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. Amen and amen. Has anyone here, I'm sure the answer is yes, who has all been to the Museum of Natural History? So I love that place. I mean, it is mind-boggling that you walk into the Museum of Natural History and you, you see things, I'm thinking of dinosaurs specifically, I'm still a kid at heart, but you see these, they're dinosaurs, a massive, thank you, Wesley, on the fourth floor there, and they, they are incomprehensibly large. And, and, and by the way, that's an analogy, because it's, a, it's hard to believe when we read in books today that dinosaurs actually exist, right? Existed. It's hard to believe that because we don't see it, but there they are. There they are. There are their skeletons. There are the fossils. So it shows you just just because you can't see something doesn't mean that that necessarily is true to reality. Just your lack of your ability to perceive something does not necessarily connect with reality all the time. Nevertheless, so when you go into the uh, Museum of Natural History, there are four floors from what I remember. And each floor kind of has a theme. So the first floor, I remember there's a kind of butterflies and cultural exhibits and and kind of humanity on the first floor. The second floor was animals from Africa, North America. The third floor was sort of space and sea. And the fourth floor were the dinosaurs. I might be getting some of that mixed up, but the general themes were kind of clumped together on each floor. Today, I want to take that concept, the Museum of Natural History concept, and I want to walk you through the Museum of Spiritual History today. And I have three floors in mind. The three floors are, who are God's people? That's the question the first floor answers, and we'll go through the exhibits of God's people. Number two is, how does one become part of God's people? And number three is, what is the object that allows us to be part of God's people? All interconnected questions with interconnected answers, but they are distinct at the same time. So this is the Museum of, of, of Spiritual History today. I want to take you through. Now, And if you can grasp this message that I'm giving you today and that the Apostle Paul is giving you, you will be able to understand the essential plot line of Scripture. You'll you'll understand the plot line of Scripture from beginning to end if you can grasp this, and I trust you can. So, first floor. Let's walk into the Museum of Spiritual History. We're on the first floor, and the first room you see there is the story of the Old Testament, all right, that's, that's the first room I want to walk you into, into. And the story of the Old Testament begins with Adam. Adam, created in the image of God, meant uh, created in the image of God to spread out God's goodness into all creation and to have dominion over the earth, to protect his wife, rather falls victim to the snake and has fallen and has broken his fellowship with God 
and thus man's fellowship with God. Genesis 1 through 11, at that point, is a story of man's sin. Man begins to murder and kill one another, and it crescendos in the Tower of Babel, which is also metaphorically powerful for a nation and a people that want to be God, and they want to build up their tower to the heavens because they themselves want to be the gods of the universe. This is the state of man, Genesis 1 through 11. So what does God do? Does he utterly, well, we know he wiped out much of humanity in Genesis 6, but at this point, does he do it again? Does he utterly wipe out humanity? It seems that God, and this is, the, this is where the Bible begins, really, talking about redemption, God chose a man. He chose a man and his family to redeem the rest of the earth. That man was Abraham. And in Genesis, let's turn to Genesis 12. I just want to read to you the call of Abraham. So humanity is in disrepair, broken fellowship with God. No one seeked after God. And so God calls a single man, Abraham, in this, pa in this passage. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name at this point. Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God chose one man and his family, Abraham and his family, who is Israel, that's the descendants of Abraham, to be the vehicle through which God would bless the earth. That's the point of Abraham, and that's the point of Israel. So God's plan was to redeem mankind through Abraham and his offspring, or Abraham's seed. But it turns out, did they do a good job being the vehicle through which God will bless the earth? No. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, the theme in Judges is, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the kings worshipped idols, and they backslid constantly. And so Israel, who is blessed with the vocation of being God's blessing to all the nations of the earth, and to spread his goodness, to spread his ways out into all the earth, have failed their mission. That is why Christ comes, as I understand it. Christ comes because humanity has not only fallen, but God's very vehicle to redeem the earth has failed. So what does Christ do? He comes as a man. So as to assume the role of Adam, and as a man, in the role of Adam, he also assumes the identity and vocation of Israel. And that is why Jesus Christ comes out of Egypt in Matthew, just like Israel came out of Egypt. And that is why Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness to parallel the 40 years that Israel spent 
uh, spent in the wilderness. And that is why he picked 12 disciples. Because that parallels the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is why he goes up on a mountain in Matthew 5 through 7 and in Luke and gives the law of God on the Sermon on the Mount. Only it's not the Old Testament, Old Covenant law that was incomplete. It was the very heart of God. Now, not making allowances for the hardness of men's heart. And then taking the penalty that Adam and humanity deserved, he died. And he swallowed death in his death. And then he rose again from the dead. And it is now only through his life that we can have life. And I, that's why I love that song that we sang, Christ is our only hope in life and death. And it is only in his death and subsequent resurrection that we have hope because we serve a living Messiah who rose from the dead and who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But in him, in him, there is hope. So that's the basic story of the Bible. Now, in the most historically oriented way I can put it, the gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So God promised Abraham, through you, I'm going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That finally came into fulfillment through not Abraham, not Israel, but Christ. Christ is, and his work is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So with that in mind, verse 24, now we can ask the question, so who are God's people? Is it just the Jews? That was the question on their lips in the first century. Who are God's people? Who are the vessels of mercy? In verse 23. Who are the called of God? In verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. And Gentiles just meant everyone else who's not a Jew. Everyone else. So he has called the vessels of mercy, and those whom he has called is not just Jews, but everyone else on the face of the earth. Now, the inclusion of Gentiles, then, is the implication of the gospel. Is this some kind of Pauline idiosyncrasy? Now, I just gave you the background of the Old Testament, so we know that it's not. But for some reason, Israel did not grasp this. And so they were confused as to why God was including all these Gentiles while all the Jews were not coming to faith in their Messiah. So Paul says of the Gentiles, he says, you shouldn't be surprised as Bible readers, as Old Testament readers. You shouldn't be surprised that the Gentiles are included. Listen to what Hosea says in verses 25 and 26. Now here, Paul quotes prophecies from the book of Hosea to show that Scripture has always said that Gentiles were going to be in God's covenant people. 
So he quotes Hosea. Those who are not my people, Gentiles in this case, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place in Hosea, where it is said to them, you are not my people, in that very place they will be called sons of the living God. So, Paul, in context, these quotes, God is talking about in Hosea Jews that he rejected, that he will reinstate as his people. And it's very interesting that Paul applies that concept not to Jewish people necessarily, but to the church of Gentiles and Jews. So the Israel who would be reinstated as God's people includes not just Hebrews, but Gentiles as well. So Jews and Gentiles, Paul's point here is that Jews and Gentiles form a single covenant community as the people of God. And this was always the plan of God. And they should not be surprised because scattered throughout the Old Testament are prophecies about Gentiles coming in. And that is what the promise to Abraham was built on, that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So God's ultimate plan was never It was never to organize his people around ethnicity, and it was never to organize his people around the law of Moses. It was always to have all the people, all the nations of the earth, in one covenant community. So that is the next room called the Gentiles. We want the room the, the story of the Old Covenant, we just walked through the room called the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now we're going, before we go upstairs to the second floor, there is the room called the exclusion of many Israelites. After saying that, you should not be surprised that Gentiles, many Gentiles are coming in. Paul now gives the shocking statement to many Jews that they should not be surprised that many Gentiles or Jews are out of God's covenant people. It's not as if this is a foreign concept in the scriptures. So in verses 27 and 29, the Apostle Paul is quoting from the book of Isaiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, to show that being a physical descendant of Israel does not mean that God will save you. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us, that is Israel, offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So these citations from Isaiah, Paul's showing the Hebrews that God is not foreign to cutting off the people of Israel and casting them, great numbers of them aside, while only leaving a remnant. It's not like this is a foreign thing for God to do. So being a physical descendant of Abraham, being Jewish, 
and thus being part of Israel did not lock you into salvation, Paul's saying, essentially. What locks you into salvation has always been faith, repentance and faith. That's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he points at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And listen to what he says in Matthew 3, 7 through 9. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. So then... It's not biological descendants of Israel who are God's people. It's always been those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It has always been, in other words, faith. Now let's go to that second floor. So that's, that's what's going on here. The purpose of God from Abraham was blessing all the nations of the earth. Many Gentiles are coming in. Many Jews are being excluded. So how then, how, if it's not through ethnicity, if it's not through law-keeping, how does one gain a right standing with God and become part of God's people? Verse 31 and 32. Verse 30 and 31, rather. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, pagans who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is based by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So here's, a, here's almost an objectionable contrast that Paul sets up in verse 30 and 31. I like the way... One commentator, Grant Osborne, summarizes it. He says, So the Gentiles, did, who did not seek a right standing with God, found it, while the Jews sought it with all their heart and their strength and failed to obtain it. That's almost objectionable, that pagans who never pursued God found a right standing with God, and Jews... Highly, highly religious, failed to obtain it. Why? Why would, God, why would God allow his people who pursued righteousness to fail to obtain that righteousness? Verse 32 is your answer. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. That's why. The way to enter God's favor was always and has always been and still is and always will be not by your good deeds, but by faith, no matter how religious looking those good deeds are. It has always been through faith that you enter the kingdom. Meanwhile, the Gentiles, pagans, who never pursued righteousness, in light of the resurrection of Christ, have come to faith 
in God's promises through Jesus. They, they attained a righteousness through faith. So, right standing with God is always been and has always been and will be forevermore by faith. Now, this is why almost, I've said this before, but every major religion is a works righteousness salvation. If you ask the Jew today, they're going to say, how are you saved? And they will answer, well, I've kept the law, I've kept the Torah. So basically it is their own as Paul puts it, will and exertion that gets them into the kingdom. Muslims will say, I've kept my pilgrimages, I've become a martyr, and that's how I know I'll enter the kingdom. That's how I'm entering the kingdom. If you ask the modern man in the West, the moralist in the West, how do you know that you'll go to heaven? when you die? That's the common way we ask the question. And they'll say something like, well, if God exists, he'll see that I've been a good person. And he'll see that I've, you know, that I've tried my best to, to live rightly and live a moral upstanding life. And all three of those things have one thing in common, that my standing with God is attained by relying upon a righteousness that originates in myself. That's what Jews, Muslims, and the modern Western moralist has have in common. That self-righteousness is the way that I attain the kingdom of God, if it indeed exists. So this makes salvation something God owes you. God owes me because I've been righteousness, and then my works become currency that I purchase heaven with. That is precisely what is going on in our country today. Not that everyone is anxious about heaven, but they believe if it exists, the currency of my self-righteousness will purchase whatever God, if he exists, has in store for me. And that is the height of arrogance. Who went down justified? Was it the Pharisee who said, I fast twice a day. I give my tithes. Thank, thank you, God, for not making me like this sinner. Or was it the tax collector who would not even look up to the heavens and said, have mercy on me, a sinner? I, I want to submit to you that no matter how um, callous our country paints Christians as, it's actually the modern secular Westerner who is the most proud person today. Because the message of Christianity is that you're a sinner and you need grace and a Christian is somebody who acknowledges they're a sinner and that they need mercy and grace. The height of secular arrogance is, I don't know, I'm not even going to pursue the question that hard whether God exists. I'm not going to pursue whether he has offered a way to be in relationship with him. 
I I'm not as bad a sinner as the other guy, constantly comparing myself to other people. And if God exists, then it's my self righteousness that I'll use as currency to purchase whatever whatever this deity has for me. It is the height of arrogance. It's not humble. It is not humility. So no matter how bad they paint Christians as being uh, highly religious and holier than thou, it is actually the modern Western man who believes he is holier than you. And it's his righteousness, whether that righteousness is attained through social justice or some kind of other moral means, they believe it is their own self-produced, self-originating righteousness that will attain them status with the divine. And that is so arrogant so as to be condemned, and indeed it will be condemned. Faith, however, faith is receptive. It is fundamentally receptive. Faith receives something. And so those of us who have faith reach beyond ourselves. We don't reach in ourselves and pull out righteousness for God to see. Faith reaches to grace. It reaches to mercy. And it receives. So you see, works, righteousness, reaches in myself and pulls out something and gives it to God. Faith reaches beyond itself and receives from God. Now, Faith can be ambiguous, though. Faith can be very ambiguous because people will go around saying, well, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a man of faith. I'm a, I got faith. I got faith in God. Yeah, God, I believe in God. And I have faith in God. Faith, God, faith, faith, God. Yeah, I'll, those two, well, I'm good with that. You know, those are generally, those are general and spiritual, though not too religious. Enough, I'm on board with that. So I want to take you up to the third floor now. The third floor of the uh, Museum of Spiritual History, and it's just a rock. And the Apostle Paul says that these Jews have stumbled over this stumbling stone, this rock. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A few things I want to point out here. It is God speaking in this prophecy. I am laying in Zion. We have to understand that this rock that God is speaking about has given has been given from his own initiative. This is God's doing. Number 2, it is a rock of offense. So this God talk is very comfortable for people today because it's so general. But what do you say about Jesus Christ? And that's, that's the difference. Is you can talk about God with anyone. It's easy to talk about God. Who, who doesn't believe that God might exist or that, that he might, you know, who, that God is such a general category. For people today, but as soon as you mention the name of Jesus, the air gets thick. And people start to tense up. 
And you start to get alone. You see, he is the rock of offense. He is offensive to the modern ear. We, and I'm not denigrating, I'm certainly not denigrating the Father. But you see, you see my point. God has put forward Christ. And it's that that very point, the very offering that the Father has put forward, that there is offense today. In, 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 um, in the prayer breakfasts or whatever that goes on in the White House, they'll talk about God, the, the, the God of all the nations, the God that all the religions were. But Jesus Christ is what's offensive you can talk about God all you want today. But as soon as you mention Jesus, the air starts to get heavy and you know something different is being spoken about here. Now we're talking about how God has revealed himself. Now we're talking about whom God has put forward to reconcile us to himself. And now we're talking about whom God has put forward as your ruler. And so Jesus, in no ambiguous terms, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except through me. It's not, it's not Christians who are being bigoted and just putting that forward. We just believe a guy who rose from the dead Amen. when he says that. And when he says, all authority has been given to me, we believe the guy who rose from the dead. So, God is laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He is very offensive. He was offensive then, and he is offensive now. But here's the promise. Whoever trusts in him, whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. And that's the key. Trust in Christ, that his death did what God said it did when it covered your sins, and that his resurrection is the life that he shares with those who have faith in him, and that your eternal destiny is safe through faith in him. That is what it means to have faith, to believe in this rock of offense. That's the third floor. Now, anyone who believes Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it is not yourself. Do not reach in to your soul and offer God your self-righteousness. And don't let anyone hide behind God talk or faith talk. Ambiguous. Yeah, I'm a man of faith. I believe in God. I'm spiritual. But what say you about Christ, the risen one? That's the Museum of Spiritual History. If you get that, you get, you get the past and you get the future. And you get the story of the Bible. That floor one, who are God's people? Jew and Gentile. Floor two, how do you become part of God's people? Not by works, but by faith. In whom do you place this faith? You place this faith in Christ. And now... If there is somebody here, I cannot see anyone because I don't have my glasses on. But if there's someone here who has not placed their faith in Christ, 
You are being called right now to do that very thing. To place your faith in Christ and to follow him and to obey him as your only hope in life and death, as we say. There is no safety outside of Christ. There is no security outside of Christ. For Christians, however, you have to understand that our, your obedience is also from faith. Please understand that. It's not having begun in the Spirit, we are not now being perfected by the flesh. Rather, the obedience we live is also from faith. Look, look how Paul starts, and this is so misunderstood today. Look how the Apostle Paul begins um, his letter to the Romans. He essentially summarizes the gospel, and he says that he's been, he has received grace in verse 5, and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So Paul's aim was not just some kind of faith detached from the way you live, nor was it obedience in the sense of being self-righteous without needing to trust. No, it was the obedience of faith, the obedience that springs from faith, in other words. And you don't do this, you don't obey Christ in your own power, but on the strength that he supplies. And if you look throughout the Apostle Paul, you'll constantly see him saying things like, I struggle with all his might that he powerfully works within me. And he prays that we would be strengthened according to his glorious might with all endurance and patience with joy. I was just telling, I love this line. I think I've quoted it to a few of you already. But I think it was Dallas Willard who says that a Christian burns grace like a 747 burns diesel. We live on grace. We thrive on grace. We fall on grace, and it is only by the grace of God that we can get up and serve him. And that, that word grace is the umbrella term for Christ's work and the Holy Spirit in you producing the virtues, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, faith, hope, love. And your job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's the obedience of faith, and to cling to Christ. It is by the grace of God I am what I am, the Apostle Paul said. And that's where we are today. Living in faith, running on grace, not relying on our own strength, and trusting that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? And amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God be glory and majesty and power and dominion now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>